So how is everybody doing reading through the Bible in this year? Anybody still hanging on? Anybody? Yes, yes, yes! Yes! That is very encouraging, very good. Still, I want to encourage you, if you are not keeping up, if you have not kept up, there is still time. I spent a lot of time in a tree this week, and so I, I read on my phone the Bible when, I, when I'm sitting in the tree, when the light allows. And so I finished Revelation like Tuesday. It was like, I got on a roll, and it was it was pretty awesome. And then I was kind of disappointed. Like, well, there's no Revelation 2. You know, no second Revelation. So should I start over with Genesis or what? But man, y'all, it is, it is cool to, to read Scripture to get the message of the entire book. And, and I think when you do that, you can see how easy it is and how often it's done where somebody pulls a passage or a verse out of context and beats it into a hole that it was never meant to go into. And so we have this opportunity to, to read through, to work through the text as a book, and we see that it is one book, one author, one message. And so today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians, and this passage, this book, is about the cross. And as I think about this faith family, just in different conversations that I have with many of you, and I think through the room, and I look across faces, many of you You have, you have life going on. Some of you are wishing that you had more hope. And some are looking for comfort. Still others for joy. And, and as we come into this, this season of Christmas, those words tend to come to the forefront. Joy and hope, and love, and peace. And I believe in this day and age, those words are not just holiday words to put on a, a cool sweatshirt or an ugly Christmas sweater or whatever. These words are real. We need peace. We live in a world, we live in a culture where joy is so confused with happiness that the definition gets destroyed. And we live lives where just a moment's peace is something for which we would pay a large amount of money sometimes. But then the, the gripping pain that sometimes comes with life just makes us long for comfort 
And I say all this to drive us to this point. The only hope that we have for for joy and for peace and for comfort, for love, for strength is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can spend a lot of time and effort and money trying to find those things in different ways. But all of that is wasted if we don't look for these things with the cross of Christ. And so I want us to to look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and I want to read 1 Corinthians 1.18 and I'm going to read into chapter 2 to verse 5. And so, if you would, find 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and with your Bibles open, would you stand please as we hear the word of the Lord and look at the power of God. The Bible says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength brothers think think of what you were when you were called not many of you were wise by human standard not many were influential not many were of noble birth but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. But he he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, 
but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pray together. Father, you meet us in this place. And Lord, we know you have, as we have sung for for a few moments about your power and the power that's in your name, the power of your word. And here, Lord, we read of it. Father, my prayer is today that you would you would convince us of this. That how many songs and how many verses will we sing and read of your power and then be foolish and not live our lives by that power? So God, our prayer is, is that you would show us very clearly the message that you have for our hearts today. And that your spirit would apply this message to our hearts. And that I would get out of the way. And that you would gain the glory for this. So Lord, I pray that you would just unleash the power of your spirit in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the cross-centered life. In the text, the context, Corinthians, the church in Corinth, is the place where it seems that they did a lot of stuff wrong and that a lot of First and Second Corinthians is great for us because it's the record of Paul correcting the church in Corinth. And so we get to see... God's truth as it unfolds when the Corinthians get it wrong. And I have told myself over the years, I don't know why in the world anybody would name their church Corinth, Corinth Baptist Church or anything like that, because they were not the prime examples of church. They stunk at everything. And the cool thing is, is that we have the truth of God's word where Paul speaks into their lives. And so in Corinth, they were, they had heard the message of the cross, but then they were moving on to what they thought were bigger and better things. And Paul was saying, no, 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 you don't leave the cross. You want to cling to the cross. And so, my desire for us today is that we will see how precious and and wonderful and beautiful the cross of Jesus Christ is. And perhaps for, for some, for the first time, to run to Him as, as your only hope in this life and the only hope for all of eternity. And so I want to to look at five reasons why the cross is the center of your life or at least why it should be and and really 
do so chronologically from eternity past to eternity future. And so five reasons why the cross is the center of our life. The first reason is because the cross represents God's predetermined affection for you. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so there's this big contrast. There's really there's, there's two types of people. There's those who are the perishing, as he speaks of, the message of the cross to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So those who are perishing and those who are being saved. So here it is, the contrast to those who are perishing, the cross seems absurd. To those who are perishing, the cross seems absurd. Now what does that mean? This is to those who don't trust Christ, those who don't believe. There are probably a few of those in our world today, right? In this culture, when you bring up the things of faith, when you share the word, when you speak the word, it's like they look at you like, oh. So still, you believe that stuff. So you're still leaning on that crutch. And they find it so foolish. I've heard people say that religion is what people need who can't stand on their own feet. And my answer to that is, yeah, yeah, it's true, true, yeah, I can't stand it's not religion, it's a relationship, but I need that relationship because I can't stand on my own. In fact, I bow before the only one who can stand in the presence of God without sin. And so, here we are in a culture where God has called us and and we share this story about how God became a man. So God, God created everything and then he became like one he created. And then he let him kill him. So already we've ruled out Every Muslim, they would not buy into the fact that God became a man. So already, that is an impressive percentage of the world's population that think this is absurd. But then, this God who became man. He walked on this earth and then he was put on a pole to die. And not just killed, but tortured. A barbaric torture that 
there's a lot of times throughout history where certain people just want other certain people dead. Look at the history of wars all over history, right? But then there are certain people or certain cultures where they didn't just want them to die. They wanted them to suffer as much as possible in the process. And for those people, crucifixion was created. It is gruesome, slow, and torturous. And so, so barbaric. And so, to those in our world, in our culture, this doesn't make sense. In, and he speaks of the Jews. This did not make sense to the Jews because every good Jew knew that the Old Testament says, cursed is the man who hung on a tree. I mean, this is, this is bad. And so certainly, our God would not have sent his son to be cursed by being hung on a tree. Surely that's not the way it is. And so the Jews dismiss it as absurdity. But there is another group. To those who are being saved, the cross evokes awe. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so... This is what comes into my mind as I think through this verse. So there's, there's two groups of people. And depending on where you are, one group may be larger than the other. But those who, are, who think that this is absurd and those who are in awe. So what causes the different groups here? What causes the different groups? Why do some people think that this is nuts? Why do some people just bow at his feet and think, God, this is awesome. So what is that? What is the cause of this? The cause is not the specific quality of those who are called, but only the sovereign mercy of the one who calls. And so just in case you were having a moment where perhaps you thought, wow, God thinks I'm awesome. You see in the word that he says that it's on him. That he does it. And you look at the places where it says called, even before before the text where we began. In verse 2, chapter 1, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. 
And then you see it in verse 24. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then again in verse 26, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Then a couple other places, he uses the word chosen. Verse 27, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The next verse, He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things to nullify the things that are. So this this is the point. He didn't choose. He wasn't looking for those who were on the most likely to succeed list. It's not the quality of the person. It's not that you are great, and I think a lot of you are pretty great. But it's the sovereign mercy of God. He came after us. He chose us. Why did he do it? Because he's God and he can. That's why he's sovereign. And so this is huge for us. Now, you see the cause, but there's also a caution. And I don't want us to, uh, to get off on something that is not correct theologically. And so let me say this. Recognize the initiative of God. And I don't know how all this works. But I do know that God takes the initiative. He took the initiative in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he wasn't waiting around. He's not waiting around for you to clean up your act enough for him to save you. He's not waiting. He didn't wait on a specific event that was ours. He sent Jesus before I gave a rip. He had planned to send his son long before creation would have voted it in. And so, recognize the initiative of God. He started it. He took the steps to save our souls long before we could ever do anything. However, don't forget this, too. While we recognize the initiative of God, remember the responsibility of man. And so we have a decision. It comes down to us. And I look at it this way. God's a gentleman. He doesn't force us to choose him. He chases us down. He puts things and people and circumstances in our path. But when it boils down to the final end of it all, he gives us the decision to choose folly or forgiveness. He allows us, we can look at it and say, I hear this, God, but I think you are an idiot. And that's what many in our culture say. It's absurd. It's absurd. Or will we choose 
say, God, I get it. You died for me. I am sinful. I have no hope without you. Would you please forgive me? And so there is the truth that we need to see that Paul is showing the Corinthians. And so we are responsible and we are accountable. And so the number one reason why the cross is the center of our life is because cross represents God's predetermined affection for you but then secondly cross is center because the cross demonstrates God's past substitution for you in other words he took our place the essence of sin is this Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That's a lot of words. We climb on the throne and pretend we're God. In fact, some have done it so much that we start to believe ourselves. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. And this is the essence of sin. And, and so, but notice the essence of salvation. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. You get this? We deserve death on the cross. Our sin dictates that we should be separated from God and die in our sin. But yet, God sacrifices His Son Jesus on the cross. Though He had no sin, He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so there's that substitute. While we are pretending that we sit on the throne, while we pretend we are God, He takes our place on the cross. That's love. And so, when the adversary, when Satan jumps on you, and tells you that you're not enough. He's right. You're not enough. But don't be convinced that you need to do more so that you can be enough. No further payment has to be made. And so when you get beaten down, run to the cross. And, and preach this gospel to yourself all over again. That he took my place. I'm fighting to be on the throne. And I pretend that I am God. We act as if we are God. But he substituted himself in our place. 
So the cross demonstrates God's past substitution for you. But number three, the reason why the cross is the center of your life is because the cross makes clear God's daily execution of you. Now this needs some explanation. So it's not just substitution, but he tells us, and he told the apostles, that you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. And so what following Christ means, what, making, what being a disciple means, is important to us as a body because it's important in the Word. And so to be His and completely His means to die to ourselves daily. Daily, we need to have a mental and a heart meeting in, our, in ourselves to kill off our desire to take the throne. And God gives us that. We die to ourselves in this world. And we, re we rely completely on God. And I guess there's sometimes, I don't even know what that means. Like, how do we completely rely on God? I get the fact that we breathe air that we didn't make. And imagine if you're playing the game, the floor is lava. What if it were? I mean, I mean seriously. He made the dry ground. What if it were 100% water? I mean, would we need webbed feet? I mean, all of these things that go into us existing that we have to rely completely on Him that we take for granted. But then... What about in the in normal daily life, even if we assume that all of this other stuff, the air that we breathe, is just a given, how do we completely rely on God? I believe it comes from hiding His Word in our heart, but not hiding it so deep that it can't come to the surface to affect what we say and affects what we think and how our feet move. It affects our response to the person on the phone or at the drive-through. It affects how we speak to our neighbors. Completely relying on God. Like as He leads us, I mean it's everything. Our finances, our relationships everything and yet we are the most worrisome culture in the history of creation isn't that crazy I'll bet you in a minute we could come up with several anxiety drugs they're rampant we are a culture that is worried about everything. Everything! We're at this place in our lives where we're, we're empty nesters and, you know, we, we like it. 
I mean, you know, guys with kids in your house, hang on, there's hope. <laughs> there's some cool things about being an empty nester. But, you know, we've heard the wisdom of people who are older than us that you, you never stop paying for your kids, you never stop worrying about your kids. And we have this app on our phones that we call it Stalker App. But it's really called Life 360, right? And some of y'all have that. And we, we forced our kids back when, whatever age they were when they got cell phones, that if you don't have Stalker app on your phone, then it's just a toy because we ain't paying for the cell service. And so we could stalk our kids. And so it tells you how fast they're driving, where they are. It, it, it's Stalker app. And and so we have had times where we think, well, where are our kids? They're not home. Stalker app. Where are they? Well, they're on 664 going 72 miles an hour? You know, those kind of things. But we worry about everything. Are we going to have enough money? What if the stock market crashes? What if he's president? Or what if Congress looks like this? Or all of these things. And that used to be me. I used to worry a lot about the safety of my wife and my children. You know, what if they have a tragic accident today? I used to think about that kind of stuff. I'm thinking, man, that's morbid. I think this is where. It matters that we completely rely on God. And when we do that, we can step away and say, you know what? God's got it. God's got it. And even if something happens, God's in control. We die to ourselves in this world. And so... God's daily execution of us. You know, and so we die to ourselves. We die to the stuff of this world. You know, we don't, we no longer revel in worldly power. You know, we don't, we don't grasp and spend our lives hoping for the things of this world. Oh, if I can just get that next step on the corporate ladder then I can tell that dude what's going to happen we don't have to think about those things and we don't revel in worldly intellect you know it's it's not about who can be the most intelligent person because we're all his, the Walter version of this the pinnacle of our intellect is stupidity compared to God. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of this world and the despised things to nullify the things that are. And he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence 
of the intelligent I will frustrate. So if you think you're smart, have a conversation with God, and it'll make you feel stupid in a second. You know, and so we don't revel in worldly intellect because that's dead in comparison with God. And so we die to the stuff in this world, and that means that we revel only in God. So if there's anything noteworthy, anything praiseworthy, anything worthy of being reported in our lives, it should be in God. And so our only boast is the cross. We only brag about God. Number four, the reason why the cross is center of our lives is because the cross makes possible God's constant communion with you. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You know, so Christ is our righteousness. And so from that, Christ our righteousness, he has saved us from sin's penalty. In other words, sin deserves death. The payment for one sin any time in your life, death. Sounds mean. He's holy. He makes the rules. But he has given us an opportunity to have our sins placed on him. And so God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so he is our righteousness. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. Christ is our sanctification. He is, he is saving us from sin's power. Sanctification is the big, the big word for growing in Christ, for maturing in our faith. So Christ is our sanctification. And so... We need to grow up in Christ. We need to mature in Christ. In Christ, our redemption, He will save us from sin's presence. He redeems us. He takes us. He buys us back. And He takes us away from the place where sin lives forever in hell. So the cross makes possible constant communion with God. And so we can come into God's presence because he's our righteousness and he's our sanctification and he's our redemption. If he did not save us, we could not enter his presence. And so we got to get this in our heads and make it stick in our hearts in order to have the peace and the joy 
and the love that we need to have. And, and finally, the fifth and final reason why the cross is the center of your life is because the cross makes certain God's future glorification of you. This is, this is the, the next part of the text. Chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within us. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. And so, and he ends with, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so, the Spirit speaks to us on earth. And the Spirit seals us for eternity. This is great news. Because if the Spirit didn't speak to us, we would be left to our own devices in a lot of ways. The Spirit speaks into our lives. It tells us when we are getting ready to be foolish. You know, I believe the Spirit of God helps us to discern what is good and who is good. In business dealings and relationships, His Spirit bears witness with my spirit that we are the children of God. You know, And if the Spirit didn't speak, we would be in trouble because we would do the speaking. And then, of course, the Spirit seals us for eternity in that we're done. We're like stamped, paid in full, done for eternity. Done. Good. No future payments needed. Not hope that works for you. But you, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, sealed because of the blood of Christ on the cross, sealed by the Spirit forever, forever. And it always has amazed me to think about, what if God wanted to change His mind a million years into eternity? 
and say, you know what, I'm done with this. I think I can make a better toy. I think I can make a better world. This time, I'm going to do it like this. Be gone with you. you know, but we have his promise. We have this word. And it's our faith which he gives us, but it's this faith and this promise that he makes to us that when he died on the cross, that his blood forgives us of sin now and forever. And so this is the reason that we can have joy. This is the reason we can have comfort. This is the reason why, as we come into this season, we don't have love because it's on our coffee cup. We have love because Christ was on the cross and His Spirit bears witness in us that we are His forever. And we can be happy about that. We can be joyful about that. Difference between joyful and happy. We can have joy in our heart when happiness is far from us. And so let us think on these things. I want, I want us to... while we're on the cross in our minds while we're on the topic of the cross think about how important for us to keep this before us in a moment we're going to to share in communion and and what this is and what this isn't you know what it isn't when we drink this grape juice, this is not what saves us. This reminds us of what did save us, if we're in Christ. When we take the bread, we don't believe that we are nibbling on a piece of God's flesh. We believe that we are being reminded that He died on the cross and His body was broken for us. And so, it is the power of the cross. And so I want us to, to pray and then take a few moments to just share in this time of communion together. So would you pray with me? God, we, we are reminded of the truth in your word that you are so much more than we oftentimes give you credit for. But Lord, we also see that we are so much less than oftentimes we give ourselves credit for. So Lord, we thank you for the cross. And it's so central to us that you've gone out of your way to set up ways for us to remember it so we don't forget of your love for us and Lord, even the eternal significance of your Holy Spirit to our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of what you did for us on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In a moment, I'm going to have you just come up on your own and take the individually prepared cups of bread and and the similar cup of 
juice. In fact, a whole lot more similar than I made it to say. It came out of the same pack. And so if you want to come up and socially distance yourselves, you surely may. But just spend the next few moments, everybody come through and get a cup of bread and get a cup of juice. And when everybody's done, then we will reconvene. It's pretty sweet to, to spend the time together worshiping our tremendous God and, and to do so with, with our faith family. So I pray that as we leave, that, that these truths continue to, to flow through our minds this week. And that we will experience true joy and peace and love. The things that the world just talks about. But that we can experience because we serve a God that knows these things. So let's pray together. God, thank you for this family that you have assembled in this place. And God, I pray that, Lord, you would not allow us to be weighted down by the, the anxieties of this world. But that we would just follow you in faith knowing that you hold this world in your sovereign hands and that we can experience the love that you have you've blessed us with and and the peace and the comfort and the joy that comes from knowing you we pray this in christ's name amen <laughs>